Father God, we indeed do thank you for the liberties and the freedom that we have in this country that we celebrate today. Lord, it is absolutely no secret that we can meet here this morning and pray and worship and sing and preach your word unashamedly because of uh, the perspective, the leadership uh, hundreds of years ago of those who founded this great nation. And that does not escape our notice. And we thank you for the freedom that we have. We pray your continual protection upon our nation in the name of Jesus, God. We pray that you continue to keep her free, holy, right, and uh, a strong uh, force in this world. God, we uh, pray now as we turn to your word that, uh, it, that it goes out as we talk about it, that God, it would do something in our hearts and our minds. That, Lord, I, I got to believe that each one of us here today, whether we're a seeker or a veteran believer, um, have come here hoping to learn more about you and at the very least to draw closer to you in our understanding and our experience. And so to that end, we pray and that you might be glorified as well. We pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. We all say together, Amen. Well, as I mentioned before I prayed, we are in the home stretch in the book of 1 John. Uh, To use Scottsdale language, we're on the 18th hole. We're at the end of the golf tournament. We're now on the short strokes. We're heading into the clubhouse. And before we get into there, John has a couple more things to say to us. And if you've been with us in this series, you know that the whole theme of 1 John is not very complicated. It's just profound. And the theme is simply how we can walk more closely with God. We've been calling it getting the most out of your walk. That's John's concern. That as we are followers of Jesus Christ, that we will be the kind of followers who walk in the light as Jesus was in the light, and that we learn to walk in the same manner that Jesus walked. Give me a click here, Virgil. That's exactly what he taught us. And that John's saying that as Jesus walked in such a way that was holy and good with God, that we can walk that way as well, that we can get the most out of our walk. And so that's what this series has been about. We've looked at all the different sub-themes that John has thrown before us. How to walk more closely. How to walk more lovingly. How to walk more obediently. How to walk more sacrificially. How to walk more confidently. How to walk more righteously and truthfully and on and on. These are all the things that we've been learning about how to get the most out of our walk with Almighty God. And as I also mentioned before I prayed, John wants to end on a high note. In other words, uh, he wants to end by giving us something in our wheelhouse that we can take with us so that we truly can be people who in the long haul learn to get the most out of our walk with Almighty God. And so he's ending on a note that many of his contemporaries ended when they wrote other New Testament documents. He's ending on a prayer note, a prayer note. And yet check this out, folks. Interestingly, instead of just encouraging us to pray like Paul the Apostle does at the end of Ephesians, or even instead of just praying for us like Peter does at the end of his letter, in keeping with his own style, John wants to teach us a thing or two about prayer. In other words, this has been such a cool study because it's been a didactic study. We've been learning a lot about how to walk more closely with God. And what John wants to do now as we end this book is teach us some more things, but this time specifically about prayer, about how we talk with and to God. In short, folks, John wants to leave us something that's truly going to help us get the most out of our walk in the long haul, and it has to do with this idea of prayer. So no more introduction. Let's dive right in. And there are two things, if I'm reading this right, that John shares with us about prayer as he wraps up this book of his. And here's the first thing, and that is that prayer allows you to understand and trust God on a deeper and more abiding level. Did you know that? 
I'm not sure all Christians do. I'm not sure all Christians understand that prayer is not just something we do to sort of tell God things that He wants to know about Himself or even to get things from Him that many of us want to get from Him. No, John's going to show us here that prayer is actually that which allows us to understand and know God on a deeper level and to trust Him on a deeper and more abiding level. So look at how he says this to us in verses 14 to 15 of 1 John chapter 5. He says, And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. Now, I need you to put your thinking caps on here, folks, because this is an interesting couple of verses that he puts before us here, and they've been somewhat hotly debated over the years. And I would argue that they've also been somewhat misunderstood by many people over the years. Because check this out, what John is not saying here is that if you and I can somehow get God to hear our prayers as if he doesn't hear them, if we can somehow break through to him, then no matter what we ask, he's going to grant it because he's now heard us and will give us what we want. I don't think that's what he's saying here. Some argue that that's what he's saying here. That's why when you watch some TV preachers, they'll say that if you give money to my ministry and send in a prayer request, God's going to give you what you ask. Because by giving money to my ministry, all of a sudden now God's going to hear your prayers. It's going to open up the doorway to heaven. Or they might say that if you combine your faith with my faith, again, by giving me money, then that combined faith will open up God's ears so that He'll hear your prayers and give you what you want. And they cite this verse as an example of that. No, I don't think that's what this is saying here. In other words, I don't think this verse is saying that we somehow got to get God to hear us and take pity on us. And when we do, somehow we'll answer our request in the positive because He now hears us. I don't think that's what John is saying. No, I think the key to understanding this verse are the phrases that I highlighted there for you. And they are the phrases, if we know that He hears us, and that corollary phrase, then we know that we have. In other words, it's a knowledge thing that John is after here. It's an intimacy thing. It's a relational thing that he's driving at here. Simply put, when you focus on these two phrases, folks, what begins to become clear and what John is saying is that when we have confidence that God hears us when we talk to Him, when we know and trust that God is listening and that He listens because we're in right relationship with Him, with Jesus Christ, this then by its very nature produces a deeper trust and faith in God that He is good and holy. And when we trust Him and relate to Him in a deeper way as our Heavenly Father, this in turn allows us to understand and know Him more specifically and more accurately. And before you know it, through this kind of deepening, enriching knowledge producing prayer, you're going to increase your understanding of God, increase in your understanding of His will and what His heart is for you in this world, and your prayers, before you know it, begin to align with the will of God. I think that's what John is saying to me and to you here. In other words, he's saying that it's in the school of prayer that we get to know and understand God more thoroughly, and at the same time trust and depend on Him more deeply. And that as you and I do this, we will begin to align our will with His will, will, and as prayers become more, and our prayers become more in line with His heart, and we begin to see Him then move and act in accordance with His will that we've now discovered in a fresh way through prayer. 
I think that's what John is driving at here. That prayer is more about us knowing and understanding God and that as we do, we're going to know and understand His will and pray more specifically in line with it. I mentioned at the beginning of this series that John is not just a poet because he is very poetic, but he's also very linear and logical in the way that he explains truth to you and I. So I want you to look up here on the screen and just follow the logic of these two verses here. I, I think it's pretty clear. He, he begins by saying that we know that He hears us, when we know that He hears us. In other words, when we pray in the name of Jesus as followers of Christ, we know that God hears us. The pathway has now been opened to God through Christ. This in turn then produces a deeper relationship, a deeper faith and trust in Christ that then leads to a help to us discerning His will. In other words, you know the mind and heart of God as you draw close to Him in your knowledge and in your understanding, in your faith and your trust. And as you discern His will then, you're going to receive answers to prayer because you're now praying the will and understanding of God. This is what John is saying, folks. He's saying prayer helps us know and understand, trust and believe God more deeply, and that when we pray, even if we begin with our will kind of distant from God's will, through our praying, He's going to nudge our will in line with His will, because you now know and understand Him, and lo and behold, your prayers are going to be answered. I love how I, Howard Marshall, a First John scholar that I've quoted a few times throughout this series, says it. Look up here on the screen. He says, and I quote, When we learn to want what God wants, we have the joy of receiving His answers to our petitions. That is a very, very important statement, especially for the way that a lot of us think today. When we learn to want what God wants, and that's what prayer is about, nudging our will to be in line with His will, then we have the joy of receiving His answers to our petitions. And so in essence, what John is getting at here, folks, is that when we pray, and I mean truly pray, in such a way that we begin to love, trust, understand, and know the heart and mind of God our Father, that He's good and righteous and holy and concerned about our lives and this world as well. When we pray and understand Him like this, then we begin to trust Him deeper. And as we trust and understand Him deeper, our prayers begin to collide with His will and we begin to see answers to our prayers that are now in line with His will. That's what John is saying. And what a huge challenge to you and me today. Because if you're tracking with this at all, what I'm suggesting is, is that many times, many of the ways we pray really aren't in line with the will of God. They're in line with our will. They're in line with what we want. And we might even baptize our prayers with verses like, well, God wants to give me the desires of my heart and things like that. But the reality is, is that our prayers really aren't in line with the will of God. And some of you are saying, is it actually possible to pray not on the will of God? Of course. It happens all the time. And part of prayer is learning to align your will through your understanding and love for God through your praying. I want you to open up in your Bible to a couple other spots if you brought a Bible that will show you exactly uh, how this might work and how there are times when we need to align our will with God and our understanding with, with His will for our lives. Uh, first passage I want you to turn to is John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. It's a story that happened when Jesus was on this earth, and it's actually a very, very profound story in teaching us something really key about life and prayer. If you didn't bring a Bible, I'll put the Scripture up here on the screen. Just read along silently as I read this to you, just three verses. 
It says, and as he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. Focus on that. A blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, break that down a minute. You got a man, a man, not a boy, not an adolescent, but a man, most likely 20, possibly even 30 years old, who had been born blind. So let's just assume from the context here, for 25 to 30, maybe 35 years, this guy was blind. Let me ask you a question. Do you think he ever prayed to God that God might take his blindness away? Do you think that that happened? I'll bet you almost surely. Jesus was working and ministering within a Jewish context. This man possibly was Jewish, even if he was not. It was a highly religious culture. Certainly he and his parents and his family would ask God to restore his sight, especially in that brutal of a culture. And so certainly he asked God over the years. And yet God didn't. Notice in the text there why God didn't. And that is that God was waiting for this one day when the Son of God would show up and that God would choose to display His glory, His imprimatur on the Son of God in this one act of healing for this blind man. So so, so put it all together, folks. Thirty-some-odd years of blindness. Thirty-some-odd years of blindness so that God might be glorified on one day. That was God's will for this man. And all those other times when he was praying, God, heal me, God, heal me, God, heal me, it just wasn't God's will at that time. Maybe for some folks it's never going to be His will that we that God gives us what we keep asking for in prayer. But part of prayer is learning to align our will with His will so that we can have peace as we know what God is up to in our lives. How does that work, you say? Well, for that, turn to Mark chapter 14, verse 36. This is a context that almost every one of you know about. Mark chapter 14, verse 36. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's just about ready to go to the cross where He will bear the sins of all humankind upon Him. And even as the Son of God, He knows that's going to be incredibly, incredibly painful. So many of you remember that famous context where He's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. The disciples are over there sleeping. They can't even stay awake. And at one point, Jesus says this. Look at verse 36. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will, Jesus says. Whoa. So here you got a context where the perfect Son of God, who the book of Hebrews tells us had to also learn obedience, is wrestling in His Spirit, saying, I'm not sure I want to go to this cross like who would? The Father's going to turn His face from Jesus. All the sins of humankind, past, present, and future, are going to be laid upon Him. And yet Jesus, in aligning His will, don't miss this, with the Father's will, says, yet not what I will, but what you will. And Jesus accomplished this how? In the context of prayer. That's exactly what John is saying to you and I right now. That we can accomplish the same thing. That when we learn to pray, and I'm not talking mamby-pamby prayers, you know, like before meals and right before bed. Those count. But I don't think John's talking about that. So I'm about the kind of prayers in which you lay yourself out before God in your quiet place or with a small group of believers for an extended period of time. It's through that type of praying that you're going to know and understand God. And He might even, as Lewis says, surprise you with joy by helping you even understand His will for your life. 
And the only hitch, if you're tracking with this at all, folks, is this. It just might be that the answers that you were originally looking for when you went into praying, because we all got an agenda, might not be the answers that God wants for you as He aligns His will or your will with His will, right? In other words, God just might change you (laughs) in the process of prayer And you might come out of it not wanting the original thing that you were looking for because it's not about your will, it's about His will. But I would argue at the end of the day, that's a pretty good thing to have God change your will. That's a pretty good thing to have a Father who loves you. Say, hey, you know what, you wanted this, but that's not best for you. Align yourself with me. That's best for you. I mean, that's the worst that can happen when you learn to align yourself with the will of God. And that's a pretty good thing. So about three nights ago, I did not get a wink of sleep, not at all. Part of it was I was heading back from my trip to uh, back here to Scottsdale, and uh, we had a very, very early flight to catch. I had to get up at 4.30, but also I'd been wrestling with some things in my spirit uh, that were going on in my life and here at the church. And uh, as I was wrestling with that, I, I spent all night in what I would call a churning praying mode. Can any of you relate to that? A churning slash praying mode. I wish I could say that I was like Wesley or Luther, those guys, and that I was just on my knees all night in prayer, but I wasn't. But I was praying. I was churning and praying at the same time and battling in my spirit. And the reason that I was battling is because I was, I was battling in some of my frustration with what I wanted to see happen in my will, but, but knowing that there was a dark corner over here that was really more about God's will, and somehow I needed to get my will over to His will. Have you ever been to that spot? That's really hard to do. It, it, you can say you do it. I have Christians say to me all the time, oh yeah, it's God's will, i got total peace, and then their lives show that they don't, right? And we all know what that's about. Well, that's where I was. I mean, I wasn't even going to lie. I did not have peace. I was still wrestling. And yet, as I wrestled for four and a half hours in a churning, praying mode, I can honestly tell you, by the time my alarm went off and I saw it going off, um, I really had, had aligned myself in a very peaceful way with the will of God, with how I needed to respond to some of the things going on in my life right now. And I left with a lot of peace. In fact, I left with so much peace that my friend said to me at the airport, you're kind of quiet this morning. That's unusual for you, Jamie. And I said, well, I'm just, I'm okay. I'm okay. And see, that's what this is about, folks. It is learning to stay, as Andrew Murray says, in that school of prayer to the point where your will gets aligned with his will. And some of you say, well, I've been there for a long time, Jamie, in prayer, and I still don't understand His will. That does happen sometimes. And you know what Jesus taught us to pray when that happens? Give me a click here, guys. And that is that when that happens to you, if you've been in that school long enough and you still don't know His will, then pray Matthew 6, verse 10, where Jesus says, Your kingdom come, Your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Isn't that an awesome prayer? I mean, it's assumed there that you might not know God's will, right? It's assumed there that you might not understand what the will of God is, but you say anyways, God, I know you got a will in this situation, don't know what it is, so your kingdom come, your will be done. Again, that's the worst that can happen. But I'm telling you, more often than not, in prayer, as you start to understand God and His heart for your life, this world, those around you, you're going to start to get a sense of what His will is for you and those around you. And so the action point that flows from this so freely, folks, is simply this. Look up here on the screen. And that is that you can't pray enough in order to know and understand God. I mean, please hear this today. You can't pray enough in order to know and understand God. And so I encourage you to pray more on your own and pray more with others. 
You know, one of the problems with our evangelical subculture today is that we've convinced ourselves in prayer that there's kind of a, enough praying that we could do that as long as it's qualitatively good, then it doesn't really matter if we're prayer warriors or not. We'll just leave that up to the really spiritual people. Have you ever noticed this is how we think? I mean, I hear Christians all the time say to me, you know, I'm just not a very good prayer. I mean, I serve really well, and I give, and I go to small group and Bible study, and, you know, I'm willing to do these things. I worship pretty well, but I'm just not very good at praying. I hear that all the time from Christians. And we almost use that as an excuse to not have to pray more. It's almost like, hey, you know, four out of five isn't bad. And the reality is, is that along come the Scriptures, and folks, I could just show you Scripture after Scripture after Scripture where God says, no, when it comes to prayer, more is better. More is better for you and for me, both when we're alone as well as when we're with others, to learn to pray on a regular basis. Why? Because without prayer, without learning to quiet your heart before God and worship Him and put petitions before Him and confess your sins before Him, we did a whole message on this earlier in this series, without that, you will not learn how to know Him and discern His will on a deeper level. And so here's the deal, folks. Prayer is a learned activity. It's an acquired taste. It's a practiced art. And it's a developed discipline. And one that we all need to learn to do more of if we're ever going to get the most out of our walk with God. I remember years ago, some of you see I have coffee up here almost every Sunday. It is. It's actually decaf because I give up caffeine like 13 years ago. And so I figured 13 years ago when I started to preach, I didn't need to be more wired than I am already. So I don't need caffeine. So you can always trust I got decaf coffee up here, but I I drink it just because, well, it's something to do and it keeps my throat going and all that other stuff. And and, and yet when I first started to drink coffee, um, what, 25 years ago when I was in college, my dad gave me some advice that has carried me a long way. He said to me, he said, son, learn to drink your coffee black the black yuck he said learn to drink it black because it's an acquired taste and if you learn to drink it black you'll be thankful when you get into your 40s and you start to put on weight that you're not having all that cream and sugar going into you and sure enough look at me when i got into my 40s i started to hit that that middle age bulge and all that stuff and all i can tell you is i can't imagine if i was doing up in Canada, what they call the Tim Hortons double-double, double cream, double sugar, in my coffee like five times a day. I learned to drink it black. And though some of you might think that's disgusting, it doesn't bother me. It's an acquired taste. Here's my point. Prayer is the same. Some of you pray for maybe 10, 15 minutes at a time, and you think, well, that was a wash. I got nothing out of it. Well, that's not the way to approach this. Prayer is an acquired taste. It's a learned discipline. It's something that you train your soul on how to listen to God. Certainly the same way that you first learn to train your soul how to be a good husband or a good wife or a good father or a good mother or a good friend. You had to learn that activity. And it's the same with God. And so the reality is each of us can do this. We can learn to be more with God in prayer, both alone and with others. And one of the cool things about Scottsdale Bible Church is you've got no excuse not to engage in prayer with other believers. Amen? But we have prayer groups on Monday morning, Wednesday morning, Friday morning, women's ministry, men's ministry, teen ministry, children's ministry, youth ministry. Did you know we have a pastor on call every day during business hours in this church and even after that if you ever want to pray with a pastor, you can call and pray with a pastor. And so this is the kind of church where there is no reason that we don't band together on a regular basis in prayer. 
It's something we can all do on a regular basis. Why? Because it helps us to understand and trust God in a deeper level and see His movement and will in our lives. That's the first thing that John teaches us. Now, there is at least one other thing that John teaches us about prayer that we want to notice before we wrap up this series today. And this one is a profound challenge to all of us. He switches gears here, and it's point two on your outline, but very, very important if we're ever going to get the most out of prayer, and it's this. And that is that it is critical for followers of Jesus Christ to share their lives and struggles with each other and pray specifically for them. I've ordered that very carefully here, folks. This is what John is saying. It's critical for followers of Jesus Christ to share their lives and struggles with each other, i.e. openly and honestly, and pray specifically for them. So look at how John goes on to say this in the next two verses. Look at verses 16 and 17. He says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is a sin that does not lead to death. Now, what most people focus on in these two verses is obviously those two phrases, sin leading to death and sin leading to not death, right? Because you're like, what's that about? I mean, that seems kind of cryptic, and it is. And though I'll explain to you in a minute what I think this is saying here, please realize this. That's not the main point of this passage. The main point of this passage is that you and I should share our lives with each other, that we need to see each other in our struggles and even in our sin and pray for each other. And that when we do, as John says there, God will give life, restoration to our souls when we learn to pray for each other in and through our struggles. That's the point here. But what does he mean by sin leading to death and sin not leading to death? There's been some different options here. Some have taken this literally. They'd say it refers literally to physical death. So it's saying that if somebody commits a sin that kills them, which did happen in the New Testament, like with Ananias and Sapphira, that you shouldn't pray for them because you don't pray for the dead. They've already married, they've made their choices, and their eternal destiny is already set. So only pray for the living. The only problem is, is that taking this literally doesn't fit the context here at all. John's not talking about the literal dead or not dead. He's talking about believers, unbelievers, and false teachers. So that that can't be right here. So others have seen this as a distinction between what they call deliberate versus non-deliberate sins. You know what I'm talking about, conscious versus unconscious sins. And what they argue is that John is saying that deliberate and intentional sins lead to kind of a soul death, a separation from God, while non-deliberate ones can be prayed for and repented of without too much consequence. Hence, it's been this interpretation that in part has caused the Roman Catholic Church to make the distinction between mortal and venial sins. Some of you remember that from your upbringing, from CCD class. They use this passage as a proof text for that. And that mortal sins are these kind of conscious sins that you do that lead to death, separation from God, even after you die. But venial sins are more the, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the, the unconscious sins that you didn't really mean to do, and those are a little bit lesser. But again, folks, this interpretation here doesn't really fit what John is saying here. Because John's already made it clear in chapter 2 that all sins that we commit are under the blood of Christ. All of them are completely covered by Jesus' substitutionary death for us. He's made no distinction between them. And so why would he start now? That's not the context here. No, there's a third option that theologians have held for years here that seems 
to best fit the context of what John is talking about as well as the New Testament as a whole. Now listen close and it's this. That what John is distinguishing here are the sins with which followers of Jesus commit. Any and all of them, sins that separate us temporally from God, but do not lead to spiritual death, but because they're already under the blood of Christ. In other words, sins that followers of Jesus commit are forgivable sins. They've already been forgiven. It's just that they temporarily, temporarily separate us from God. And John is contrasting these with sins that unbelievers commit that certainly do lead to death because they have yet to appropriate the blood of Christ in and through their lives through faith. And that John is saying we should pray for believers when they sin, that God would give them life, as it says there in verse 16, meaning restored fellowship with Him, renewed spiritual power and energy, and a sense of God's forgiveness and presence, but that we don't pray for unbelievers in this same way because they never had fellowship with God in the first place. And so though we should pray for unbelievers, as Jesus taught us to in John 16, that they would feel convicted of their sin and come into a right relationship with God the Father, certainly we should pray for them. It's just that we don't pray for them the same that we would pray for a believer, where you would pray for life to be given in the form of restored fellowship and power. And so don't miss this, folks. The distinction, when you understand it this way, becomes a distinction between praying for a believer who already has his or her sins forgiven in Christ, that when they sin, God would restore their spiritual life, versus an unbeliever, in which it would be superfluous to pray in the same way, because it's a wholly different thing. And their sins have yet to be forgiven. So we need to pray for original conviction for them. It's a distinction between a sin not leading to death, the sin of a believer, versus a sin leading to death of somebody who doesn't know Christ and how we pray for them differently. And when you see it this way, with this kind of a distinction, now you can see the positive side of John's point here, namely that we need to see the struggles and sins of our fellow Christians around us. And as we do, we should pray for them that God would give them a sense of His forgiveness, mercy, care, forgiveness, presence, power. In short, that God would give them life and bring them back to that wonderful, joyful place of fellowship, in this sense, restored fellowship with Him again. And so when you understand this rightly, this becomes a wonderful and powerful challenge to pray specifically for each other's struggles and even our sins, prayer that does nothing but restore us to our rightful place as followers of Jesus. And yet here's what hit me this week as I was thinking about this more and more. And this is hard, folks. And that is, how in the world can you and I see our brother or sister in his or her struggles when we live in such a whitewashed, denial-oriented, not very authentic, constantly hiding evangelical subculture and even church environment where people will do just about anything to hide their deepest struggles from those around them rather than come clean about them in authentic and safe community. I mean, what do we do with that? John says right there in the beginning of verse 16 that if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, and I just simply got to ask, how can we see each other's sins and struggle when we spend so much time trying to cover them up? That's just not the church. And that's certainly not the kind of Christian community 
that John and Jesus are talking about. I mean, think about it, folks. Think of all the things that you will do in response to your Christian faith in a church like Scottsdale Bible. You will serve Him with your gifts and passions. And many of you do that so, so well. You'll worship to all different kinds of music. We're a blended church, and you do that so well. You'll give your resources to see the church not have to struggle and to be able to build a facility like this and have our great ministries. You'll join a Bible study. You'll even share your faith with other people. You'll love them with tangible acts of kindness and so many other things that Christians do nowadays. But share what is really going on in your heart and mind, the ugly things of your interior life, no way. That's just asking a little bit too much, Jamie. I mean, that's a little bit too honest and authentic for the church thing when it comes to me. That's the way that the average church person thinks. And you're not alone here at Scottsdale Bible. That's nationwide. And what John is saying here, don't miss this, is to the degree that we fail to allow a close-knit, safe group of other like-minded believers see our sins and struggles is to the degree that we will remain stuck in them never finding the life that we so long for in our walk with God. That's what he's saying. And so the action point simply becomes this, and I love it. And that is that you get what you pray for, so get honest. (laughs) You get what you pray for, and so get honest. In other words, because God wants us to pray for restored fellowship and restored intimacy with himself when people have sinned, and this includes just about every one of us, And he's even told us that he will give life to those who are prayed for specifically in this way. None of this is going to happen unless we get honestly and begin to share specifically and pray specifically for each other. And so again, because John is a logician, look up here on the screen. This is how he's saying it. That when you pray by name and by specific sin, you're going to have answer to prayer. You're going to have life given to your restored soul. But conversely, here's what many people do today. Give me another click here. If you pray, if you pray anonymously and with general sharing, then the logic will be that you probably aren't going to have a lot of life. I had somebody push back with me already this morning after the first service. They said, well, you know, I just don't feel very safe and some people don't feel very safe. And so, you know, they just give a lot of these unspoken, you know, anonymous requests. And that's okay, but I'll say to you folks exactly what I said in the first service. And that is, I really believe that what John is saying here, and you can search the word from front to back, and that is to the degree that you get honest and pray specifically is to the degree that God answers those prayers. Next year, I will have been a Christian 30 years. March 11th, 2011, 30 years. Wasn't raised in a Christian home, didn't have anything to do with spirituality or anything, as many of you know. Became a Christian when I was 17 years old. And shortly after I became a Christian, I went from uh, the partying scene and all this other stuff to prayer meetings. I mean, it was like a huge culture shock for me to go from this life to this life. But because I was so and still am in love with Christ, I was willing to do all that. And I can remember sitting in prayer meetings when I first became a Christian. And, uh, you know, I'm just letting it all out. I'm going, well, here's what I'm struggling with. And here's where my family's at. And here's where my friends are. Pray, 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 because we've got a lot to pray for. And uh, I remember once I was sitting in one of my very first prayer meetings and somebody like two or three down said, well, I have an unspoken prayer request today. And sort of left it at that. And I remember thinking, what's an unspoken prayer request? And, you know, I've always been kind of shy. So I looked at the person and said, what's an unspoken prayer request? Because I didn't get it. 
And they said, well, it's a prayer request that I'm not going to tell you about because I don't want to talk about it, um, and it's just unspoken. And I remember thinking as a brand new believer, how do you pray for that? I mean, I don't even know this per- Lord, I don't know this person's name, don't know anything about his or her circumstances. They won't even share what's really going on, but do whatever you can with them. All right, next. I mean, honestly, I mean, that's that, I know that's not right. That's what I felt like when that first hit me because I thought an unspoken prayer request. What is that about? I'd never heard of that before. And again, that's what somebody pushed on back in the last service. They said, well, you know, that, that's a really legitimate way to pray. I, I'm not sure it is, folks. I, I mean, I wouldn't shame somebody in the moment for that. When people do that today, I don't sit there and say, unspoken, no, speaking. I don't do that. But the reality is I do think to myself, where is that in the Bible? I mean, honestly, look, look, show me one example of somebody who's sitting in a prayer meeting in the Bible saying, I have an unspoken prayer request. It, it's just not there. No, the reality is, is that the Bible sets the carrot before us to have authentic community and to share your lives with each other and take a risk and to speak it. You know, John Bradshaw wrote a book back in the 1980s called Healing the Shame That Binds You. He's not even a Christian. And he pointed out that shame cannot stand to be spoken. That if you speak shame, it will dissipate because it can't stand to be out there. And I believe that's God's design. That when we learn to get honest and come clean, though it feels like it'll kill you, it won't. Especially if there's a safe group of believers around there, they're going to pray for you and love you and help restore you. I've shared with you guys before, I'm an accountable man. I meet every Friday with a small, hand-selected group of men that are my peers. One from this church, a couple not. Or two from this church, I guess a couple not. And uh, I share my lives with them. And we're very honest. We talk about our feelings. We talk about money. We talk about sexuality. We talk about our marriages. We talk about our kids. All very, very safe. They'll never tell you what I share. And I'll never tell you what they share. But then we pray, and as we pray for each other, we restore each other's soul that has so easily fallen in this world of ours. And all I know is that if your pastor can lead a life like that, then certainly you can. Because that's the journey that Jesus would have us on. That's how we can get the most out of our walk. So listen to how he wraps up this book here. It's kind of interesting. It's encouraging, but hard-hitting at the same time. He says there in verse... 18 to 21 he says we know that everyone who has been born of god does not keep on sinning in other words we chip away at our sin but he who has been born of god protects him and the evil one does not touch him we know that we are from god and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one and we know that the son of god has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his son jesus christ He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. John is concerned that we get the most out of our walk. He's concerned that we have the kind of walk that is authentic, that's real, that's focused on Christ and in loving fellowship with each other. And that as we do that, we can walk expectantly in our prayer life, seeing God move as we understand His will. And all the other things that came before us in this series... We can walk confidently, closely, obediently, hopefully. Lots of things that can come out of your walk with God. My last encouragement to you all, just keep walking. Just keep walking. I know there's times where our walk can get very discouraged, especially with a lot of things going on in our culture now. Just keep walking. I just got off a 10-day hiking trip in the Grand Tetons with some friends of mine. And there were times at the end of those double-digit hikes where I didn't think I could take another step. And you know what I did? I just kept walking. 
And as I thought about that, I thought, that's the Christian life. Just keep walking. Walk closely. Walk obediently. Walk faithfully. Walk lovingly. Walk expectantly as you pray. And as you walk, He's promised to walk with you. Let's pray. Father, I thank You that Your Word, page after page after page, is just so encouraging to us. And Lord, the greatest encouragement... Jesus saved for his very, some of his very last words, and that is that I will never leave you or forsake you, but that I will be with you always, even to the very end of the age. As a Lord, to do a series like this where we talk about getting the most out of our walk, the underpinning of all of it is that you never leave us. And that, Lord, whether we're a beginner walker or a veteran or whether we're a seeker here today, we know, Lord, that you're working in our lives, wooing and calling us to yourself. And Father, today as we've learned that prayer is the seedbed for knowing and understanding You, as well, Lord, that our prayers need to be honest and authentic, authentic in the realm of community, God, I pray You'd help us do that. Each of us, Lord, will have chances just this week, if not today, to practice this stuff. Give us the courage, the gumption to do that. God, I thank You that there's not one person here in this auditorium, this worship center this morning that's beyond the scope of Your grace, but that You love us all, that You never give up on us, that your Holy Spirit is truly the hound of heaven. And we thank you, Lord, for your grace and your goodness. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. God bless you. Happy Fourth of July. We'll see you next week.